Hello and welcome to our premiere of the Medical Mystery Tour with my co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, our medical guide. Dr. Glenn Woolman has been at the leading edge of medicine. He helped pioneer the specialty of emergency medicine and at the same time also developed and ran one of the first hospital-based integrative medicine programs in the United States. He has recently begun his new practice as a medical guy, hence why he is here with us today. In this newly specialized area of medicine, Dr. Woolman helps people make difficult medical decisions using an integrative, holistic approach so that choices are made from the best healing methods available. Dr. Woolman assists patients in making decisions that are based on unique medical, social, spiritual, and psychological makeup of each individual. Dr. Woolman helps individuals obtain, maintain, and regain a balanced, healthy life, addressing very specific categories learned through years of experience and working in collaboration with healers around the world. He offers a new and simple life balance program to individuals and groups through private consultations, workshops, seminars, and is currently the medical director for the Santa Barbara Healing Sanctuary. He is also a lecturer, musician, artist, and martial artist. And you will see through these weeks that he is also a fantastic comedian. <laughs> It gives me great pleasure and honor to introduce a true supporter, a true family member of Yoga Hub um, through these past years. Uh, Dr. Woolman has not only shared his gifts and expertise with us here at Yoga Hub and with your community, but has really been such a treasured friend of us all here. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Glenn. <laughs> greetings, Christina. Greetings, Segovia. I'd like to welcome everyone to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Woolman, your medical guide, and we will be traveling through the healthcare galaxy each week. Because this is our first show, it might be appropriate to tell you a little bit about myself, but I'm way too excited about my first guest on the topic, so I'm going to leave that for now and move right into today. In our inaugural program, I've chosen to have a conversation about predators. <laughs> so when I mention predators, what comes into your mind? Is it the great white shark, the orcas, lions and tigers and bears, or others? It's your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you that <laughs> these tales in comparison to those that we will explore today. Predators are far more dangerous, and they're all around us at all times, but they live in a microscopic world. Things, for example, like the intestinal tapeworm that lives in your intestine. There's a story, and the record has to be that a woman had a tapeworm removed from her mouth, and it was 37 feet long living inside of her. Oh, dear God. Removed from her mouth? They chose to take it out of her mouth. There are, 
we go on, Christina. There are other parasites that live in the human eyeball that you can actually see sometimes crawling across your eye. We know about flesh-eating bacteria and viruses that can wipe out our immune system, making us susceptible to even more disease. Now, my I will skin say, is crawling, Glenn. My skin is crawling now. <laughs> and I'd like to close today's show with a final comment. Most of us physicians can actually diagnose and treat the common infections that we all learned in medical school and our residency. But there's one group of specialists that stand between us and total catastrophe. These are the infectious disease doctors. It's my privilege and pleasure to introduce a friend and colleague, a specialist in infectious diseases and an attending at Santa Barbara Hospital where he teaches internal medicine and infectious diseases. I would like to, at this time, to the audience, welcome Steve Jose. I want to suggest kind of a path for us to take and for our studio audience today. So I want to get into a little bit of your uh, personal life and your training. I want to talk about science of diagnosis, diagnosing and treating uh, these microscopic predators. I'm looking for some practical information for the participants. And then I want to spend some time near the end talking about uh, a personal and medical transformation that took place with you uh, on an Indonesian island in the Indian Ocean. And at the end, we'll probably leave some people with a uh, tip or some suggestion that you can give them for uh, great health as we move into the future. So my first question is, when you were at Harvard in medical school, or was it at Mass General, where you finally got connected to infectious diseases? And what was it that brought you to that state? Well, I've always been fascinated by infectious diseases because uh, they cross all of the subspecialties in medicine. Uh, when you do infectious diseases, you need to know about uh, cardiology, gastroenterology, neurology, surgery. And doing infectious diseases allowed me uh, to just keep abreast of the various subspecialties because you got to know a little bit about a lot of different things. Um, the other part of infectious diseases was it was always changing. There were always new bugs that were being discovered. There were new drugs that were being discovered. There were new diagnoses. And I was absolutely fascinated by all of the new things that were occurring in that subspecialty. And it seemed to be, to me, to be the most interesting, challenging, and fascinating of the medical uh, subspecialties. So I was drawn to it. Uh, primarily because of those challenges associated with it. And then you worked at uh, the National Institute of Health and in Yale to uh, improve and hone your specialty. Uh, yes, I went to the National Institute of Health because I was interested in doing research, and I'd always been fascinated by uh, doing basic research, which is what I did at the National Institute of Health. And it was a wonderful experience from that standpoint, working in the laboratory, but I found that I was really much more drawn to the interpersonal relationship that occurred uh, in a physician-patient uh, setting rather than in, in a uh, investigator-mouth-guinea-pig uh, relationship. Um, I developed a terrible allergy to mice and guinea pigs, which was sort of the writing on the wall that I really wasn't cut out for doing basic research 
and therefore I eventually left the National Institutes of Health in 1981 uh, to pursue private practice. Well, I'm glad that uh, you're not allergic to humans, and we're all the better for it. It sounds like you really still love and enjoy uh, infectious diseases. What, <clears throat> what is there new that you know that most of us don't know in the world of infectious diseases? Can you talk about that for a few moments? Um, sure. I think that the, um, the things that certainly come to mind for me are the organisms which are changing as we and technology are changing and causing us to be exposed to various infections that we had not been exposed to before. And for example, the outbreak of the uh, hemorrhagic E. coli, uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome that occurred in Europe that was a result of contaminated sprouts. In fact, it was fondly referred to as the sprout break as opposed to the outbreak. And this uh, happened as a result of people eating contaminated sprouts that were placed on salads. And the outbreak uh, affected uh, a large number of people, and a large number of people developed uh, severe bloody diarrhea and renal failure as a result of it. And the investigation that allowed us to understand uh, where this came from, it was actually fascinating how that was done, because if you think about it, even I have trouble uh, remembering what I had to eat yesterday, and to think about what you had to eat two, three, or four weeks ago is difficult. And one of the difficulties in identifying the source of this outbreak was sprouts are oftentimes placed on salads, and we don't oftentimes remember that. The key to breaking uh, this open, anyway, was the fact that the people who were most affected were um, women in the age range of 30 to 50, um, and if you think about it, those are the people who are most likely to be eating salad, uh, which goes along with the epidemiologic link that essentially broke the case. So you have to be careful of what you're being exposed to out there, not only at the grocery store or the farmer's market, uh, but also the company that you see. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, speaking of that, and speaking about the way things change, uh, Matt Ridley, in his book about the Red Queen, which referred to Alice in Wonderland and the Red Queen, he talked about the time when Alice and the Queen were walking together and having a conversation, and the environment was moving along with them. And he referred this to the way we, as physicians and scientists, deal with viruses and bacteria. The virus will come and attack us during a new flu season. The scientists will get together and develop a vaccine. Oh, it will kill the virus. The virus will mutate, and eventually a new strain will come out. So it always seems to be that we're moving along with each other. Is there anything along the way that we're learning that will be a different way of treating viruses and bacteria so it's not where they can change because of a mutation, such as something genetic or something in our immune system, so we will eventually get the upper hand of all of these, or will it always be that we're walking along with the Red Queen? I think we'll probably always be walking along with the Red Queen, and we're probably going to be about half a step behind, uh, because 
the whole theory of natural selection is that um, organisms adapt to their environment. And that's what survival is all about. I mean, if you look at the, just what's happened in human history, uh, how we've adapted, and just in my lifetime, how we've gone from uh, having only landlines to everyone having a cell phone and a computer. I mean, just that sort of epidemiology and how things have changed. And in a similar way, microorganisms, it's all about survival. And so they will adapt or do whatever they need to do to adapt to whatever environment uh, is occurring. We've got medicines that we can use to treat the flu, but the viruses are becoming resistant to those medicines that we have available. It's difficult to predict which way these microorganisms are going to go, and that's what natural selection is all about. So that's why I believe we will always be a half step behind, but with our creativity, our energy, uh, our scientific endeavor, we have been able to keep at least only a half step behind rather than falling further behind. Hmm. Speaking of that, uh, many of us, I remember when I was in the emergency department, there would be people that would come in that clearly had a virus, and I knew that antibiotics would not work for them, but they insisted on having antibiotics. And there would be other people that would come in that just did not want to take antibiotics no matter what. When you work with some of your patients, and they have different feelings about antibiotics. If you need to put them on them and they fear them or they don't need to be on them and they want them, how do you work with your patients like that? Well, one of the things I've come to learn is a lot of what I do has to do with people's uh, basic belief system. And if someone truly believes that an antibiotic is absolutely what they need to treat their viral infection, it is hard to uh, go against that. And I, I can remember vividly spending uh, prolonged periods of time convincing people, I thought I was convincing them, but I was probably only convincing myself, that they really did not need to treat or take uh, antibiotics to treat a viral infection. And after I would go through this litany for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, at the end of that, they'd say, okay, well, what prescription are you going to give me? And oftentimes, if I wouldn't, then they would go seek a prescription somewhere else, which was okay as well. But I really think it has to do with what people believe. And if they really believe a medicine is going to help them, I think there's a good chance it will help mobilize their immune system to fight this off. In the same way, those that think that medicines are likely to harm them, they will find all sorts of side effects and reasons not to take those medicines. So I, I think it really... A lot of it boils down to what people's underlying belief system is. Hmm, that's interesting. And there we talk about the placebo effect, I guess. Uh, in that in that realm, and I don't want to get into this too much. This will probably be for another show at some point. But do you have any thoughts on the genetically modified organisms in our food system? Do you see that that has no problem or that has the potential or changing our immune system or our own genetic makeup and potentially causing more uh, infectious disease problems in the future? Well, I think any time there is change, there is an opportunity for a different set of consequences that occur as a result of that change. And once again, it's hard to predict um, what that benefit 
uh, our harm is going to be. And I think we've, there are lots of examples in ecology where um, the ecology has been upset by human beings by bringing in a new animal to take care of one problem, and then you find another problem develops as a result of that. And I, I, I really, I, I've come to appreciate that not only do we live in an ecological setting, but we all have our own ecosystems. And those ecosystems can be upset. For example, taking antibiotics upsets the normal flora that we have in our mouth and our gastrointestinal tract, which can cause significant problems just in itself. When you put somebody on an antibiotic, and, and I know that you're a holistic type of healer and you're always concerned about that, do you recommend anything else for them uh, while they're taking their antibiotics? To, uh, um, you know, I I must say I don't routinely do that. If someone has a question about taking uh, a probiotic to try and help restore um, the normal flora in their gastrointestinal tract, I don't have any objection to do, doing that. If I'm giving them an antibiotic that I know has particularly high likelihood of causing gastrointestinal distress, I certainly may in that situation add probiotics, but even so, the probiotics are not completely natural because they're usually a uh, highly concentrated uh, collection of either lactobacilli or um, saccharomyces um, that are not really the true normal flora uh, that we have in our gastrointestinal tract, because we have hundreds of thousands of different organisms that reside there, and it's difficult replace that uh, exactly. Uh, I, I feel the same way about that. Uh, good answer. When And that may be a topic that we will talk about uh, in another uh, session. Speaking of uh, problems with bacteria and viruses, I know that people are hearing in the news all the time about uh, outbreaks in hospitals or hospital induced uh, infection. Uh, I would like to have you talk about that for a few minutes, also in the aspect of if people are searching for a hospital and they have the potential to need a surgery, is there anything that they should be concerned about relating to hospital-based infections? How might they find a hospital better or to avoid hospitals that are not so good? Yeah, those are, those are several good questions. Um, we know that because um, sick people are in hospitals and sick people get antibiotics and get multiple antibiotics, that tends to be a reservoir, the hospital that is, for multiply resistant uh, organisms. And because of that, there's certainly a chance of acquiring those multiply resistant organisms if you're sick in a hospital for a prolonged period of time. And that usually occurs when people are in an intensive care unit setting where there are lots of instruments, lines, tubes uh, that are present which allow uh, these resistant bacteria to penetrate our normal defenses uh, that we use. So hospitals are a reservoir for resistant infections, although MRSA, which clearly is a resistant infection, is now out in the community. And you can get this resistant infection 
from uh, playing sports, from going to the gym, uh, from shaking somebody's hand. So that's, that's another sort of caveat, at least in terms of uh, drug resistance anyway. I think in terms of looking for a hospital that, uh, and worried about an infection from a hospital, there is public reporting of the hospital rates of infection or various kinds of infection that can be found on the Internet, and that's one way of looking into the possibility. I think that any time an invasive procedure is done, there is always a potential risk for an infection occurring, and that's part of the risk of doing business. So I think any time you do an invasive procedure, make sure that you uh, really need to have it done and then talk to your surgeon about what uh, he or she is going to do to help prevent or minimize that. If you have it in tendency to developing infections, you might use a certain kind of soap uh, for a week before to decrease the possibility that you may get an infection. But I think really speaking with your surgeon openly and uh, about these risks will help both you and he or her to minimize the chance of that occurring. Just to uh, clarify, MRSA is methicillin-resistant staph aureus. That's one of the bacteria that uh, uh, has mutated and is no longer uh, appropriate to treat it with the antibiotics we used to. You mentioned, exactly right. uh, you mentioned handshaking. I wonder if we as a society should consider a few things. Number one, maybe we should start bowing to each other rather than shaking hands. That might... Uh, cut the increase of uh, spreading disease. And also, I'm wondering, when I travel through Asian countries, I periodically see someone on the street wearing a surgical mask. Uh, and it usually means to me either they're sick and they're being civilized and polite about not wanting to give it to someone, or they're concerned the opposite of receiving something. Wondering if you think uh, that should be something we do in this country. Um. Yeah, it, I guess it uh, speaks to the uh, the adage that it's not necessarily better to give than to receive uh, <laughs> when it comes to infectious diseases. Um, certainly, uh, surgical masks can cut down the airborne spread of microorganisms. It turns out that again, touching is um, or touching contaminated areas is probably a greater risk for things like. Uh, MRSA infections, and even some of the viruses that we can pick up. Uh, influenza, we think, is probably spread more by the respiratory route. And certainly, if you're coughing, sneezing, that's a great, well to, great way to expel organisms into the air and certainly contaminate uh, other people. Um, I, I think any precautions that and I encourage anyone that when you're feeling ill, the best thing that you can do is stay home and take care of yourself. And we're in such a workaday society where people feel the need to go to work and spread the wealth of their infectious diseases, which is great for my business, but it's not really <laughs> great for the uh, health and welfare of society in general. Maybe we should start a national surgical mask and bowing day and have it on the opening day of flu season every year. Yeah, that would be interesting. I, I like the bowing as sort of honoring uh, one another rather than handshaking, which I think Horizon was making sure people weren't harmed. Uh, That's right. <laughs> uh, 
speaking of that, you have so much knowledge about all of the bacteria and viruses and parasites and spirochetes uh, that are around us. Are you biophobic? No, not at all. And what keeps you from that? Um, well, I, I know, I, I like to believe that I know when I need to be worried and when I'm, and not to worry. And I, I always take, uh, precautions about those infectious diseases that, um, I know can be difficult to treat and easily acquired. Now, having said that, I can remember very vividly uh, during the outbreak of the swine influenza uh, that occurred uh, two to three years ago, uh, going in, being called to the emergency room to see someone who was sick, and it was in the midst of the epidemic, and I was in a rush to do something, and I went in to see this young woman who was 21 years old um, who had a respiratory mask on, and I, I bent down to introduce myself to her just as she coughed and sneezed right in my face. Um, and she was indeed infected with the swine influenza H1N1. And within 24 hours, I came down with the symptoms of H1N1. Uh, and I actually was thankful for that experience because I knew that as a result of that, I was now immunized. And therefore, I had no fear in terms of dealing with the other folks that I was seeing on a continuous basis uh, who had that. So Along that line, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, along that line, I remember when I was in medical school, we had a professor who taught us parasitology, the study of parasites. And what he would do, he was so dedicated to his field that he would go to third world countries and actually infect himself with these parasites so that he could bring them back home to the medical school and into his lab and then study them. Are, are you that dedicated? Well, you know, when you were talking about the 37-foot uh, tapeworm, uh, even I got the heebie-jeebies uh, visualizing that because I've actually seen that occur in certain situations. So, uh, no, I, I can't say that I am that dedicated, although I do like to travel I use, I like to try and maintain my gastrointestinal integrity, um, certainly uh, in those situations. Okay, so the 37-inch uh, tapeworm is, uh, foot, are foot. you telling me that it's not, quite common? Not in, foot. Okay, is, is this quite common? <laughs> and no, how do we avoid something like that? <laughs> no, it is not common at all, and essentially... You just need to avoid any uh, exposure to potentially contaminated water, no matter where you are, because it really comes from uh, not having water that has been appropriately filtered and decontaminated. Wow. That, that's, uh, that's amazing to hear that in, in this day and age in the city, like in, in all these industrialized cities. I mean, I can see that possibly in third world countries, you know, where they're just relying on well water. But, but you as a doctor is actually seeing this? Well, I think, it's, I think it's not particularly common, but again, I can, I can tell you uh, certainly in Southern California, it's not at all uncommon to have a taco truck uh, come up and park outside the hospital 
uh, that ha that actually is here from uh, Mexico. And of course, those taste treats, those street side vendors, which provide the tastiest morsels when we are on vacation, are the ones that you really need to avoid because they are also con potentially contaminated with organisms that can give you various infectious diseases. So you just have to think about where things came from that you were putting into your mouth. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I mean, um, having said that, I, even here in the middle of Los Angeles, too, I, I remember going to this sort of gourmet restaurant having a beautiful salad. And within an hour after that, I had the worst stomach poison, the worst that I'd, I'd ever <laughs> had. It hit me within an hour. So I. I guess it's everywhere around us, with, with uh, no matter how careful we are. Uh, I think that's true, and, and what you probably had was food poisoning, and the food poisoning that occurs occurs from organisms. You don't have to be in a developed nation to get food poisoning. All it takes is to allow some ranch dressing or some potato salad uh, to sit out uh, for three to four hours unrefrigerated, and those organisms that are in our environment here in the United States, multiply and divide, make a toxin, so that when you ingest it, usually within 30 to 90 minutes, all of a sudden you get just profound nausea and vomiting, which is your body attempting to get rid of that toxin. And that is very common, and I think we all remember those moments uh, when we have been beset uh, by one of these uh, toxins or an intoxination uh, that has occurred. Oh, well, those parasites and those tapeworms within our bodies. I, I didn't realize a, a tapeworm was considered an infectious disease, so this is uh, really awakening for me. Good, <laughs> good. I awakened a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Steve, um, I just listened to a lecture uh, which I shared uh, with you about the concept that many of the disease states that we have today, like fibromyalgia, uh, like chronic fatigue syndrome, have to do potentially with insidious infections that are going on in our body that are not necessarily infectious diseases anymore, but they are now manifesting as other types of ailments and syndromes, uh, arthritic diseases. We know that uh, bacteria now cause ulcers. We're looking at bacteria and heart disease and a number of other things. Do you have any thoughts about the possibility that insidious infectious diseases, like, for example, a Lyme disease, might be causing other problems and we're looking in the wrong direction? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And um, with the Lyme disease in particular is a, a really uh, difficult topic because I know that the Infectious Disease Society of America uh, is at odds with the uh, Lyme Association because the infectious disease folks, for the most part, do not support the use of chronic antibiotic therapy to treat uh, manifestations of Lyme disease. So there is controversy between those people who have symptoms that they are suffering from and the folks who study those uh, diseases and have some information and knowledge about that. I think there's no doubt that 
infections get the immune system up and going, and we get out of balance. Once we get out of balance, meaning our immune system is out of balance, then how do we get back into balance? And I think this is a, a, an ongoing, continuous question that we all face uh, throughout our lives. What those pathogens are that incite the immune system to get up and get going, you know, it's very common to see people come in who have a severe infection and they've been uh, working really hard, they've been working 10 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, they, have, they feel they have to do this to provide for themselves or for whatever reason, and they are just physically exhausted and are open much more susceptible to some of those pathogens as opposed to people who take care of themselves. And I, that balance gets upset by infections, I have no doubt about it. Oftentimes it's difficult to really put your finger on what the infection is that initiated this, and is it really treating the infection or is it treating the immune system to allow it to get back into balance? Mm. We will be talking uh, over many uh, of our topics about how to stay in balance and looking at ways to be balanced through nutrition and exercise and stress management, sleep management, spirituality, patterns of behavior. Uh, I want to move now uh, as, a, as an interesting segue to your trip to Bali. But before that, when you get onto an airplane and you're going to be taking a trans-Pacific or a trans-oceanic flight somewhere, do you do anything special uh, to prepare or protect yourself from that person who's coughing on the, in the seat behind you or anything else? No, I don't. Um, I, I basically look at um, traveling on an airplane as an opportunity to stimulate my immune system to any of those pathogens that they have not been exposed to. Um, and as long as I'm keeping myself healthy and fit, I'm, I feel like I'm in a situation where my immune system can handle it, and uh, I guess I go about uh, traveling on uh, an airplane and walking into the hospital with the same degree of fearlessness um, that I guess I approach life. So I, I don't get nervous, worried, concerned about that uh, at all. I certainly would attempt to avoid that kind of exposure, and I must say, Somebody who's coughing voraciously uh, in a close vicinity, if there's an opportunity, I might move away uh, physically from that. But uh, other than that, no, I don't take any special precautions. And do you, uh, if your any of your patients come to you and say, I'm traveling here, should I have this, should I take this, do you have any recommendations to them in terms of traveling to other countries? Oh, sure. There's a, there's a whole subspecialty in infectious diseases known as travel medicine, which does exactly that and mm -hmm. allows you to get your uh, immunization boosted and also uh, give you certain uh, prescriptions for either traveler's diarrhea or malaria or whatever outbreak or e epidemic uh, might be occurring uh, in various areas, just as a reminder about how to prevent mosquito-borne diseases and certainly being cognizant of those things that we put in our mouths that may hopefully not be contaminated by water that's been contaminated. Excellent. So 
now you're on an airplane and you're traveling to, uh, let's take Bali, where you were recently, correct? Correct. And you had uh, somewhat of a transformative experience there. You Would you tell us about it a little bit and start with why you went, maybe, and uh, a little bit of what happened there, and then we'll move into how that changed or modified your practice in any way now? Um, well, I, you know, it was... Um, it was time for me to go, or I, I was sort of feeling somewhat um, ineffective as a physician because I keep running into these situations where I don't have an immediate uh, fix or cure for it. Lyme disease would be a good example of that. Chronic fatigue syndrome would be a good example of that. Since I primarily work in the hospital, I'm used to dealing with people who are acutely ill where I have to make minute-to-minute life-and-death decisions. And I have really trained myself in order to be able to do that uh, very quickly and prudently. In the outpatient setting, it's a little different running into people who have these chronic conditions that are totally debilitating. And I just felt that I wasn't able to serve them uh, in the same way I could in the intensive care unit anyway. So... um, the uh, trip to Bali was actually a spiritual journey, and I wasn't exactly sure what that was going to mean. But um, when I got there, the first day we went to see one of the local healers um, who was going to give us a medical diagnosis. And I was, of course, uh, bemused um, by that concept. I thought, well, I'll be interested to see what this guy can do, or uh, me, who's been Harvard-trained and in practice for 35 years. I can't believe he's got something he can show me or tell me. Well, after about five minutes, um, he looked at my hand, and he looked at the side of my hand, and he said, hmm, you have uh, severe inflammation in your intestines. Well, he got my attention in a major way because it wasn't until I had my first screening colonoscopy at age 60 that I found out that I had Crohn's disease. And he could take one look at my hand and made that diagnosis. I've got all this incredible medical sophistication at my fingertips. And it took me 60 years uh, before I could figure out or someone else figured out that I had this malady that I had had uh, intermittently uh, suffered from throughout my professional career. And he was able to put his finger on that immediately. And during that period of time that I was there, he made some special concoction for me to drink twice a day um, that was made out of local plants and herbal medicines. And since I was in Bali, and that's been eight months ago now, I have not had any symptoms of Crohn's disease, and I have not taken any medicines for Crohn's disease since that time. So that's, that's probably the best personal example of a transformative experience uh, from going to uh, a developing nation and uh, getting something which changed my world in a major way. You, um, you I have a question. Um, Stephen, when you had that happen, uh, for example, you knew you had Crohn's disease because of certain tests that you went through. Now that you've returned and it's eight months later, have you had those tests performed again? Um, well, that would require uh, another colonoscopy and another biopsy to be done, and 
I'm not quite ready. I'm not that curious to have another colonoscopy done right now to find that out. I'm really relying on the symptoms that I have and how I feel physically. And that's one of the areas of trust that I've come to because a lot of times people want to have a blood test that gives them the absolute answer. And I've, I've, that's been part of the paradigm shift for me as well. I don't need to have that colonoscopy. Not that I particularly want to have that colonoscopy, <laughs> but I also don't feel that I really need it to know how well I'm feeling. Okay. You, uh, as a Harvard graduate and someone who trained at NIH and, and has been in the scientific uh, data-producing uh, realm of medicine with double-blind, placebo-controlled meta-analysis studies before you'll take a drug, uh, now you're on an island and you're getting some herbs that probably have not been through that major analysis. What made you uh, accept that so easily? Um, well, you know, I, it's my curiosity, I believe, more than anything. Uh, but it's also a trust that we are brought to those things that we are ready to consume, uh, imbibe, and embrace. And, I, you know, I must say, you know, reflecting on that particular question, uh, when I came out to Southern California and began my private practice, um, I was ready and raring to go because doing infectious diseases and I had antibiotics that I knew would cure people and no problem. And then came along the AIDS epidemic. And I really had no tools to use to treat the virus. And so I was really left uh, just being present with those people who were going through the throes of AIDS. And I watched how many of these folks, and this is how I learned to embrace the holistic concept of other things can actually help relieve pain and suffering, whether that's acupuncture, homeopathy, sacred geometry, prayer, meditation, exercise, a whole new world was open to me because my patients would teach me what they had done or what they had tried, which allowed me to start recommending that not only to my patients, but also recommending it to myself. How do we get our colleagues to uh, think that way? Um, that's a great question in terms of, you know, I think that I can pretty much tell when a physician graduated from medical school and residency because those concepts that were learned um, indelibly during the, those formative professional years, they still practice in their um, daily life. And what does it take to transform that? I think it takes the experience, either professionally, of seeing others improving in the face of my not being able to help them or my being frustrated at being able to help them, um, as well as personally experiencing, you know, what acupuncture has done for my uh, degenerative knees and the effect that acupuncture had on my gastrointestinal tract back when I thought I just had irritable bowel syndrome. 
So I think it's a combination of the professional and personal experience. And how do you do that? I, I think that people have to have that curiosity to be willing to take that leap of faith. How do you get people to take that leap of faith? I, I think by example, by sharing this information like we're doing right now, um, and having that conversation. It's a wonderful answer. Thank you for that. Here. I was going to ask you, I promised uh, our audience that uh, I would ask you if you had some special tip, either a beauty tip or a healing health tip that uh, has come to you through your years of experience and wisdom. Um, you know, one of the things that I do when I feel myself becoming ill is I totally surrender to that. And the day after I was exposed to the young woman who had H1N1 influenza, I felt myself just this profound sense of fatigue uh, overcame me, and I knew immediately uh, what was going on. So I took one pill of Tamiflu, which is the antiviral we were using to treat H1N1 at that time, and I immediately went home and went to bed and slept for 14 hours, and I woke up, and I was absolutely fine and had no symptoms after that. So being aware and being willing to surrender, it allows my immune system to do what it can do best, which is heal me. If I continue to go to work, if I continue to use up energy doing other things that I don't really need to do, then it takes my immune system a much longer time to fight off whatever it is that I've been exposed to. I, the other thing that I, I do when I find myself in stressful or difficult situations, I just stop and I just say a little prayer. And sometimes I just ask to uh, let me be. And that just allows whatever information, knowledge can come through me uh, so I can really be the best that I can be. It's really a matter of stopping and knowing and trusting that there is help available. Um, and it's just a matter of being willing to ask for it. Thank you for that. Christina, any questions? Um, yes, I mean, for our audience, uh, because I, I, I hear this come up a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm the mother of a, a five-year-old, and, you know, there's a lot of youth parents around, and, um, you know, what they do with their children and things like that. Um, because, you know, as we all know, they go to school, they sneeze, they cough, they're touching everything, they're putting everything into their mouths, etc. I mean, is there anything that you can share with us parents um, to help us as we are, you know, bringing these new lives into the world? And, and you know, I am very much the believer of, of allow it to happen because it just builds his immune system, my child's immune system, as he goes through all these, all these, uh, he's exposed to all these wonderful viruses and bacteria and everything. Um, is there anything that you can share with us that would help um, uh, individuals out there who are raising young children? Well, I, you know, I, I have a um, a personal bias that um, daycare centers.
centers are what is known as the cesspool of modern existence. And the reason for that is that children, in their absolutely delightful exploration and sharing, share everything with whoever is around them. And therefore, if there is one potential virus, infectious disease, it just goes through daycare centers. Mm -hmm. And then the kids who don't really get that sick, may have the snuffles or something, bring it home to the parents who are working, busy, who can't really take time off to take care of themselves. And then oftentimes they find themselves coming down with upper respiratory infections maybe a half dozen, a dozen times a year when they used to only get an upper respiratory infection maybe once or twice a year. I think it actually helps the kids' immunity. I mean, it used to be before we had all these vaccinations, that's how we uh, developed immunity. Measles, mumps, uh, rubella, chicken pox, we all got from playing with our kids. And the immunity that we got lasted us for a lifetime. Now we give all our kids all these vaccinations, which are absolutely wonderful and certainly have changed um, the um, consequences of childhood illnesses for the better. There's no doubt about that. And I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that kids should not get uh, vaccinated. That's probably, again, another topic for another time. But certainly <laughs> yeah. those respiratory, those gastrointestinal viruses, I think if you, the more you challenge your immune system, you build up your immune system, the better off you are able to fight that off later on in life, rather than just staying at home and, and being very protected. Once you do finally go out and go to school, you're going to be much more at risk because your immune system won't have the, um, the wherewithal, the knowledge of those previous exposures. So let them go out there and let them catch it, right? <laughs> let them have fun. Let them be curious. Let them share and experience life. Uh, that's what it's all about. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, this is, and, and I do have another question. If you could articulate for our audience um, the difference between a viral infection and a bacterial infection. Well, viruses and bacteria are two totally different kinds of organisms. A bacteria can multiply and divide on its own. Um, it doesn't require any help, whereas a virus requires another living cell in order for it to multiply and divide. So they require different medicines to treat them. Um, they can be acquired in the same way, either by touching or through the air, uh, but they require different medicines uh, completely different kinds of medicines to treat them. You have different kinds of immunity that deals with them, and they have different kinds of manifestations. So could, could you give us like a, a few examples of the categories that like a cold or, you know, bronchitis, what, what categories would they fall into? Sure. And the um, for example, um, when people get um, a cough, sore throat, runny nose, um, sneezing, that's usually a virus 90% of the time. Uh, when that uh, cough, sore throat, runny nose, muscle aches, and pains uh, turns into uh, a runny nose that's got green or yellow secretions, or people are coughing up things that are green or yellow, 
that suggested bacteria may have moved into the picture. And one of the uh, questions I used to ask my children continuously, and now they volunteer to me when I talk to them on the phone, they always tell me whether their cough or secretions are green or yellow because they know that, that I'm concerned that it's a bacterial infection which may require antibiotics to treat it. So that's something really good for all of us to know. It's like once it turns uh, funny colors, it's time that we might need to get checked out, right? Well, you should think about that. Or if it persists longer than two to three days or three to five days. But, you know, I can tell you there are some times there was a respiratory virus that went through the community um, just in the last couple of months that left people with a non-productive cough for two to three weeks. And it was very troublesome, but there really wasn't any need to take any medicine for that. It was more a matter of making sure you go home and get plenty of rest and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I think I think that one is still rampant around Los Angeles right now, actually. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I hear people six weeks on already. So yes. it's sort of lingering and they can't take anything except, I keep saying, boost your system. <laughs> you know, just keep well hydrated. <laughs> right, and rest. So, wonderful. Well, that is you. important uh, to continue to boost your system and try and maintain optimal health because remember, as we started, all of these organisms are around us all the time and some are actually inside of us all the time. It's just that our immune systems are keeping them at bay. So when something happens to us where the immune system has to put all of its strength into one area, such as a virus that's attacking, then it may not be able to use the same energy to fight that bacteria that's already inside of us that has been dormant for so long. So it is very important, again, to recognize it. And as uh, Dr. Jose said, uh, to sometimes surrender and do all the good things to just allow and heal. I like that, to surrender. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm checking out now. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Glenn, uh, Stephen, is there any final words that you might like to leave with our audience? Stephen? Um, I think it's, you know, just as usual, being aware of how you're feeling, what's going on, because when you're aware that you're becoming ill and you pay attention to that, that's the most important thing you can do. I think we're being alive is all about increasing our consciousness, and our consciousness starts at home, and we have to be self-aware first, not only just things in our surroundings, but what's going on in our bodies and are happening to us, and that's the key. Um, that ounce of prevention certainly is worth a pound of antibiotics, uh, and I would certainly suggest that. Well, that was wonderful. Um, I would like to say that I'm grateful my special guest for our first show, Stephen Jose, for sharing his wisdom and experience. I'd also like to thank all of my teachers and all of those that have helped me in my healing throughout my life. I'm looking forward to getting together again on the next Magical Medical Tour when we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. So until our next meeting, I would like to just wish all of you optimal health. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Jose and our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Again, uh, we welcome you and invite you to join us here on YHTV for our next medical mystery tour. 
with uh, our medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, on Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. And we look forward to seeing you then and answering the questions that you might uh, be typing in for us or ahead of time. So look out in your emails and uh, on our show schedule so that you know who the next guest is and ask the questions that you'd like to <coughs> get answers to. And uh, again, we look forward to sharing with you. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you.